You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo host a great show called The Making of a Marketer. Jess, Andy, tell listeners what to expect from the show. So let's take marketing through a late night talk show lens. Eliminate the X's and O's and bring in the personality of marketers just brings it all together. So if you're looking for that POV on what drives that marketing and sales alignment on someone how they became a marketing executive, or what is that day-to-day when it comes to your personal brand? We talk about and tackle these subjects on the making of a marketer. And most importantly, it's fun. And where can people subscribe? Look for the podcast on LinkedIn under the making of a marketer. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for the making of a marketer wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone, you are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Cassell. I'm joined today by Ashley Cox. She's the founder and owner of Sprout HR. We are going to talk about hiring today, and we are going to talk about some myths and some common misconceptions. So, Ashley, it's really great to have you on here, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this and and some of the myths and misconceptions like you mentioned, because they are out there. They are a plenty. And we're going to do a little myth busting today. So, you know, the, the way I usually run this podcast is pretty loose and conversational. See where it goes. And, you know, you submitted some topics. But before we started recording, you mentioned something that actually feels more exciting to me to talk about. And I think it is the topic um, of there is no good help out there. I can't hire anyone. Nobody wants to work. And you said, that's just bullshit. So that felt really in alignment for me and my audience. So I would love to have that conversation because I agree with you 100%. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because people have been saying this, I think, for as long as people have been hiring. <laughs> it's not new. Uh, but it does seem to be a lot more prevalent these days. And it seems that you're hearing this sort of rhetoric more often. Um, and I work with a lot of group therapy practice owners, and and I'm hearing this over and over, right? I'm hearing, well, I just can't find anybody. And Indeed isn't working anymore. And nobody wants to work. And everybody wants, you know, a million dollars for five hours a week. And and I get it. Um, I hear a lot of this. And I'm also very quick to call bullshit on it because. I'm also seeing the opposite. Uh, You know, I I see amazing people who are wanting to be part of group practices. I'm seeing amazing team members who want to contribute in meaningful ways. And they also want the things that are important to them. They want the things that they value um, in their personal lives, in their work lives. And I think that's where we're finding a, a chasm or a gap between what we want and need as group therapy owners and what our potential candidates or potential employees want and need as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't say it better myself. And, you know, I do own a group practice. We have 15 therapists. We just hired two more. We have two psychiatric providers. We have an office manager and a scheduler. So I find it really hard to believe that good help doesn't exist because our staff is pretty wonderful. And I have probably responded to about 60 applications via email over the last two and a half weeks with just unfortunately a generic blanket we're not hiring right now but circle back in the fall statement because it gets too overwhelming 
But here's what I think the difference is, and I think you you hit the nail on the head immediately, is that people are definitely willing to work. People are definitely willing to work hard in a profession that is pretty fucking exhausting emotionally and physically. And they're willing to be a part of a team. But you, as the group practice owner, have to create the culture and the camaraderie and the team. And your values have to align much more in the people over profit mentality over instead of like really feeding into the capitalist system that we live in. Because if you're not going to treat your staff well, if you're not going to you know go the extra mile or include the extra benefit or the extra dollar of pay, why would I come work for you if I could go do this on my own? And mm-hmm. I think that people get lost in that because it's really easy to get lost in the narrative of, I'm just going to hire, I'm just going to hire, I'm just going to hire. And then all of a sudden you've created a just chaos and you don't have good pay structures in place. You don't have incentives. You don't have ways to help people grow professionally and develop. And that's where a lot of burnout comes up. And that's where a lot of turnover comes up. And you know, as well as I do, that turnover is expensive. Onboarding is expensive. I would much rather treat my employees well and reduce our turnover than be constantly looking for employees and hiring. And we're blessed to be in that position, but I'd love your take on that. Oh, you're hitting the nail right on the head because what I'm seeing out there in the way of job descriptions and job postings, you know, a lot of people want to say, well, Indeed isn't working the way that it used to. Yes, it's not because the candidate, the end user, the person you are trying to attract has realized that they have a lot more value and a lot more worth than what they maybe have previously thought or or felt. And so when I see job descriptions that are saying must have 10 years of experience, must have this degree of certification or this licensure, and I'm going to pay you the equivalent of $12 to $15 an hour, people are going, I I don't think so. I'm worth more than that. Thank you. Next, I'm going to go take a look at what other options are out there. So you have to really be mindful of how we are asking people to show up for us and how we are showing up for them. And I think that's exactly where you hit the nail on the head there, Patrick, because it has to start first with our values. You know, if you're saying um, things like I I charge what I'm worth or I create a practice that fits around my life, but then you're not doing the same for the people that are on your team, you're out of congruency. You're out of alignment with your values and people pick up on that. They're going to call bullshit on that just as quick as I'm going to call it because they're going to say, hey, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel right. You're saying this on your website when I read your about page, when I read your company info, when I read you know, what your culture's like. And then on the job description, you're telling a very different story. And so people are going to be really quick to call that out. So if you're not getting hits on your job description, there's probably something that's out of alignment there. And people are picking up on that. They are way smarter than we give them credit for. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree 100%. And, you know, so many of these job descriptions are also written in like this robotic, impersonal like language that doesn't speak to the user experience or the applicant. And I have been hired several times to write job descriptions for therapists because I'm like, let's embrace the company culture. Let's embrace what you really want to offer people. If you really want to ensure people only work four days a week, emphatically state that and state why. If you want to talk about like the time off and the actual self-care, because we love to throw that buzzword around in this profession and not actually practice it. Mm -hmm. And it makes it, it makes a substantial difference. But here's the thing is like, It can all be lip service, but on the other end, you have to be practicing what you preach as the employer. Because again, I I 
as a private practice coach, I constantly am asking for feedback internally with our group practice of like, why would you work here knowing you're going to make less money instead of working for yourselves? Because I teach people all over the country how to work for themselves. So it feels a bit hypocritical for me to say, well, I'm the employer in this relationship and you know, I'm, I'm profiting off the work that you do. And, and the constant feedback is that we have connection, we have camaraderie, we have teamwork, support. People feel challenged. People feel like there's leadership tracks, there's development tracks. We're actually promising and delivering and over-delivering what we've said we're going to do. And we pump most of the profit back into the company. And I think we've been open now for, I know we open as a group. I was in private practice since 2017, but a group since January 2021. So a little over two years now. We've only had two employees leave in those two years. And those two employees left to start their own businesses. And I don't blame them for that. But I also acknowledge that not everyone is set up for business ownership. Like, I don't want to deal with the admin side. I don't want to deal with the marketing side. I don't want to deal with the ups and downs of when the clients don't come in or, or any of that stuff. So I get why group practice is still an enticing possibility for people. And that's another misconception is nobody goes into Nobody joins group practices anymore. Everyone goes into private practice. And that, again, is bullshit. It's total bullshit. And then I hear this all the time, too. I'm sure we hear a lot of the same things, Patrick. And uh, it's, it's interesting because where you are in your career right now as a group practice owner is very likely that you are surrounded by other people who are entrepreneurs, who are group practice owners, who are on the same journey which means that you're not seeing the thousands of people who have absolutely no interest in this life whatsoever. They just want to do what they're great at and get a paycheck for it and feel really fulfilled and go home. And they don't want to have to deal with, you know, business taxes and licenses and all of the things that come with running a business and leading a team. And that's okay because we need those people, right? If you're going to grow a group practice, we absolutely need those people. And so Thinking that nobody wants to work in a group practice is a huge misconception. And I think that's where a lot of people get kind of stuck um, in their mindset. You know, the, the things that we think absolutely have an impact on the way that we act and the way that we show up in this world. So if we think, well, nobody wants to work anymore or nobody wants to work in a group practice, the actions that we take are going to start to reflect that. And then we're going to fall into confirmation bias and we're going to only see the bad things. We're only going to see the people that want to start their own practice versus work in a practice. But so many people want that teamwork. They want that camaraderie. They want people to bounce ideas off of. They want that culture, that experience that you're talking about. Um, and they don't want to have to create that for their own, uh, for their own self or for other people. And, and I know one thing that's so, so important to remember is that when you go through your therapy training, you get your credentialing, you get your licenses, your degrees, all these things, they don't teach you how to run a business. And that's a whole different ballgame, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're spot on. And, you know, they don't treat, teach you how to run a business. So a lot of people are out there flailing. And I know a lot of absolutely wonderful clinicians that are just terrible business owners. And that's a reality for a majority mm -hmm. of people who do try to own a small business in general. That's not just mental health professionals. It's like mm -hmm. so-and-so who wants to open up a cupcake shop. Like anyone is going to struggle. And the reality is some people are much more inclined to overcome the obstacles and barriers that get thrown your way when you're struggling as a small business owner. Some people are like, I can't deal with this. I'm packing up shop and I'm closing my doors. And my clinical director 
at our practice is a good friend of mine. And she at one time was my clinical supervisor. And we started our private practices together. And she packed up her business very quickly because just could not handle the the business side of it. And then reached out to me a year later. and was like, can I join your team? And I was like, hell yeah, I know you're an amazing clinician. Like, I don't need you to be anything other than a wonderful supervisor. And that I know you can be. So mm-hmm. small business ownership is just not for everybody. And the reality is there are quality applicants out there who are looking for good employment opportunities. The problem is there are so many fucking bad employment opportunities. Yes. And I've been at conferences before where group practice owners have said, I can't find applicants. And, you know, this is like roundtable discussion stuff and everyone's offering feedback. And, well, how much are you paying? And it's like, oh, you know, like $24 to $30 an hour. And I'm like, what? Like, mm-hmm. I made more than, I make more than that when I was bartending, like big times <laughs> to get a master's and then come out of school and, and jump into a $20 an hour job. Like, that's not going to fly for people. And mm-hmm. I think we've seen a movement post-COVID. And I think COVID was a big catalyst for this of people who want to leave their agency jobs Mm -hmm. because it became very apparent very quickly that community mental health organizations, as we've known for a long time, just do not have the resources, but also oftentimes do not care about the employee. So Mm -hmm. it's been a mill for a long time. So people said, if you're not going to take my health seriously during a global pandemic, fuck this, I'm going to start my own business. And a lot of people did. And that's when all things private practice was born. It was kind of a perfect storm really for me. But what I saw was so many people going out on their own who honestly hated it because they were like, I am so lonely. I don't know how to get clients. I don't feel like I have adequate supervision or consultation. I just want to be a part of something where I can be treated well and not taken for granted or underappreciated. And when I interview people now, you know, my interview style is quite lax like this podcast, but I will tell them straight up, like, this is the expectation. This is how it runs. And everyone will always say that feels too good to be true. And then Mm -hmm. a month later, they will text me and say, this is amazing, but I'm still waiting for things to like go sideways. (laughs) Now, a year later, it's like, can you finally just buy into the fact that like there are good places to work out there? Like not everyone is out there to take advantage of an employee. So I think that's also important to notate. Oh, it's so important. And I think what we also have to really be mindful of is that people have had these incredibly toxic workplace experiences for decades, decades. And we're also coming through new generations who are seeing work differently, who are thinking about work differently, who are thinking about work-life integration differently. You know, the boomer generation is I show up, I do the work I'm told to do. I stay as long as I'm told to stay. I stay as longer than I'm told to stay because FaceTime is really important and I don't question it. And then you get the millennial generation, the Gen X and the millennials come along and they're like rebels and then saying like, well, this is crap. I don't want to stay, you know, just to be at work. And and I think this is, you know, bullshit. And I don't want to I don't want to fall to this kind of um, expectation. And then. We have this beautiful Gen Z coming through who are just like, yeah, I'm not here for any of that. 
You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo host a great show called The Making of a Marketer. Jess, Andy, tell listeners what to expect from the show. So let's take marketing through a late night talk show lens. Eliminate the X's and O's and bring in the personality of marketers just brings it all together. So if you're looking for that POV on what drives that marketing and sales alignment on someone how they became a marketing executive, or what is that day-to-day when it comes to your personal brand? We talk about and tackle these subjects on the making of a marketer. And most importantly, it's fun. And where can people subscribe? Look for the podcast on LinkedIn under The Making of a Marketer. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Making of a Marketer wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. And that's a great point because, and that's another misconception though, because I will hear this from colleagues that the newer generation of therapists, they just don't want to work hard. Like they only want to work 10 hours and go home. Maybe some of that is true. Sure. Absolutely. Like I do think that we've swung work-life balance in the opposite direction because for so long institutionally, there was no work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And again, COVID as destructive as could be, really highlighted how short life can be and Mm -hmm. how important it is to really be in alignment with your passions and your values. And, you know, you mentioned the boomer generation, like pensions and retirements, right? Like those things don't exist really anymore in terms of working for a corporation. So you've got to take care of your own self-interest as well. And I think, you know, I, I look at my role, my brain is diverging into a different pathway right now, but I look at my role not as a boss or, or employer, but as a mentor and a guide. Mm-hmm. And if I can treat people well and give them an experience where they feel like they're appreciated and not taken for granted and they get paid well, the odds of turnover being low is quite high. Like the, that just increases, but ultimately the relationships and the desire to be at work and the desire to participate and be a part of a team goes up too. And like, that's a hell of a lot easier to manage than like, feeling like I've got to be authoritative or like, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned, like helicopter boss or leadership style. Like I feel like autonomy is crucial. We're working with adults, like Mm -hmm. micromanagement is, is not for me. So I just think that ultimately it really does allow you to have an outlook on things. And it's the same way that I looked at therapy when I was working as a therapist was like, I'm working myself out of a job all the time. That's the way I, I conceptualize therapy. And the same thing as a leader is like, I'm helping support development throughout people's careers. And do I expect people to work here for the next 20 years? Hell no, because I wouldn't do that. And that feels like very hypocritical and unrealistic to ask of someone. It does. And I think that if somebody gives you a solid three years, a solid five years, that's amazing. And and if you can send people back out into the world better than when they came to you, you've done your job. Um, And I think that's also where people don't understand building a pipeline of talent, right? They don't understand having people that are excited to come work for you before you're ever even ready to open the doors for an application. And that's because your culture isn't just something that you wrote down one day on a scrap sheet of paper and stuck on your your TV or your computer monitor. It's something that you've integrated into every single fiber of your practice, of every single interaction with your team members. And so they're going out there and they're saying, oh, my God, if you ever get the chance, you want to work at this place. 
Um, even even your interview process. Let's let's even think about strangers on the internet. Um, the way that you show up from a value centered focus and and talking about and and really living out your culture is in your interview process. It's before you ever even meet this person, you know. So it's do you follow up with people in a timely manner or are you ghosting people? Because that goes both ways. It's not just you know potential candidates ghosting employers, but employers are notorious for ghosting candidates. And it happens in major corporations and it happens in small businesses all across the board. So if your value is that, you know, we care for each other like a family, well, family doesn't just ghost each other, right? So how are you living those values throughout every aspect of your interview process to attract and, and excite people? And then how are how is that following through with orientation, with onboarding? Are you just saying, well, you're going to sink or swim, good luck, or are you cultivating a true onboarding experience where people feel embraced and they feel supported and they're getting the training and they're getting the knowledge, they're getting the connections with the other team members? I mean, like every single part of what you do with people has to be rooted in your values and you have to be living it out, not just talking about how these are our values. We're so excited. Let me put them on the website. Let me make a cute graphic for it. But actually, truly living those values every single day. And that's where most people get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I was thinking about that the other day, you know, in our interview process, because our three main populations that we support are the neurodivergent, LGBTQIA+, and the BIPOC communities. So we, our values speak to those populations, and that's interwoven throughout our website language. But if applicants were to apply, and it just stopped there, like it was just lip service, and we we're like, yeah, we don't do anything about it. We just say these things or like, yeah, we're, we're allies. That doesn't feel good for me. And I'm sure it would not feel good for the potential applicants and employees. So I think that means as the leader of the, the infrastructure or the company or, or the business, you've got to be pursuing those opportunities as well. And if you want to attract, and I hear this all the time too, like there's so much tokenism in this in this field of like, I just want to have a BIPOC therapist on staff for pictures and like to show we're diverse. If you want to attract diverse applicants, you have to be really putting your money where your mouth is. And you have to be pursuing continuous learning and education and training from people of color or from LGBTQIA members or from autistic ADHD consultants. Like you have to do the work. and I think that's where group practice owners get it wrong a lot of the time is because if you're so focused on profit margin, like I understand profit is important. I don't want to do, like minimize the fact that your business has to make money to survive. Mm -hmm. How much money do I need to make to survive? Like, and I think that's important to realize and recognize because that's where a lot of frustration will happen in these group practices from the employee side is like, I'm sick of the 60-40 split. I'm doing all the work. Or I am sick of making $23 an hour because I'm doing all the work. In a lot of ways, they are doing a lot of the work, if not all of the work. So I think it's really important. And, you know, I, I've read studies before becoming a group practice owner back in the day from like CEOs of tech companies in Seattle who are like really, really emphasizing profit or not profit giving the profit back to the people who are working and really emphasizing the culture and how that in the long run really works out. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. And that's why we're introducing profit sharing. That's why we're doing a lot of things that when we talk about them in the interview status, like people are really shocked. Mm -hmm. But I just think that you're going to get a healthier, happier, more content, more 
committed employee or staff member if you treat them well and you go the extra mile. And it's worth spending more of the profit to do so because it just makes your your company or your culture run like a well-oiled machine. And it doesn't really take a ton of effort or energy. Like our practice is almost 100% virtual. We have clinicians who live in the Midwest and Florida, like all over New York, North Carolina. We don't see each other's faces very often, but we have a connection and culture and a community and a team where people feel like they have teammates, where they feel like even though they haven't seen each other's faces in a month since the group team meeting, that they have connection. And that took a lot to develop, but it was worth it in every sense of the word, like team retreats, team outings, team events. Like it's so much more than like the stereotypical lunch at uh, the holiday party, you know, like show your appreciation to your employees, make them make them aware that you think about them, that you appreciate the work that they put in, because it really is a win win all around. If you can really embrace that mentality and get out of the mindset of like, applicants are lazy, people don't want to work, uh, there's no one applying, where do you even find applicants? Like, And all of the myths that we're discussing, but like, it does take a lot of intentionality and it takes a lot of energy and you have to be committed to that. Yeah. And I think something that, that happens a lot as, as solo practice owners grow into group practice owners is that they forget to take off that solo owner cap and so that transition's really hard because they, they're trying to maintain all the things that they did before and now take on this new leadership role, right? And so what happens is you get even more overwhelmed, you get even more burned down and burned out and, and just burdened with having 57 jobs instead of, you know, only 32. Uh, and so I think that part of this too is that you have to first look in, internally and say, what what do I want to put my my energy, my hours, my effort, my time toward in this in this practice? You know, if I want to do therapy, then maybe staying a solo practice owner is the right choice for you. But if you want to really step into that leadership role and you want to guide and mentor, like you mentioned, other people and help them grow and help them develop, you're going to have to probably take off that therapy hat more so than you maybe initially intended. Um, and so, you know, maybe in the beginning, you've got two or three people on your team, you you continue to practice therapy. But as you grow, as you get toward 10, 15, 20, 50 people, you know, depending on how big you want your group practice to be, your role is going to change significantly. And so we have to really understand, do I want to be in that role? Where's that cap? Um, and you don't have to have it decided today, but I think you have to be intentionally looking at what's the next step and how does my role shift as I move into that role? Um, and something else I wanted to uh, speak to, Patrick, that you had mentioned was, you know, as we are thinking about how do I create that culture that I want for my team, you don't have to be the one that comes up with every single great idea. Like you've got team members to help you ideate and to think futuristically and to, you know, create this culture together. And I think that we get really stuck in the trap of thinking I'm the boss. I'm the leader. I have to think of it all. I have to do it all. I have to be it all. And that's just such a a big misconception. And and I want you to get out of that rut. If you think that you have to know it all, do it all, be it all, um, come up with every great idea, because you will find so many more brilliant ideas when you tap into the collective of your team. So it's okay to ask people, hey, what would make our culture better? What would make this a more fun place to work? What would make this a more uh, you know, exciting place? How would you feel 
uh, you contributed in a more meaningful way. It's okay to ask our people these questions and especially to say, I don't have all the answers. That's why I hired you beautiful, brilliant people so that we could create this together. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's how you develop quality employees and staff members and teammates and is asking for feedback and figuring out ways to use the talents that they have. Because doing one thing over and over and over again, for some people that works, but for a lot of people, you want to use different parts of your brain. You want to put on different hats while you're at work. So to be a part of, hey, help us plan the next team event or retreat. Hey, did you want to, you, you're really good at whatever EHR we use. How would you like to be the onboarding clinician for people? Like give people opportunities to grow into roles because that's really important. And I think what happens to a lot of folks is they feel stagnant or complicit and they're just like, this is kind of boring me. I don't really see where this, you know, takes me in the next couple of years. And I ask people that in the interview process, like, you know, do you have an interest in leadership? Do you have an interest in training? Do you have an interest in A, B, C, D, and E? Because I think, again, going back to hypocrisy, if you see that I have a podcast and that I do retreats and I have coaching programs and I have all these things that generate revenue, it'd be really hypocritical for me to not share that with them and say, like, there are other possibilities to make money aside from one-on-one -on -one therapy. Are you interested in doing any of these things? I can help support you along the way. So I really think it comes back to that. And you're really helping just develop camaraderie and cohesion and connection. And it allows for accountability processes to be put in place too. So lots of things we could talk about with this. Another myth and misconception, and I'll, I think this is a good ending point after we talk about it because we could talk about all this stuff for days, it feels like. <laughs> for sure. I have a lot. I don't do one-on-one -on -one coaching anymore. Um, Post-throat surgery, I shut that down. But I have a lot of people who would ask me and still do ask me like, hey, I'm getting a lot of referrals. I want to refer in instead of out. I want to start a group practice. I always ask, and I think this is paramount. Do you want to be a leader, the administrator, a boss, or do you just want to make more money? And if the mm -hmm. answer is number two, I do not think group practice ownership is for you. And I really think that if you do say that's the reason you have to have a good leadership team in place, if you do not want to be the boss, if you do not want to help develop people, if you do not want to deal with the onboarding, I see that far too often as if it's like this simple thing to say, I'd rather just refer in instead of out. And I think it really does come back to your why and your values, to really aligning your business practices and your group practice culture with that answer. And it's going to show up like when things get hard, when things are rocky, when things, when there's conflict, like that's when you have to default to the, I want to be the leader here. I want to be the boss. Like, and you have to wear that hat at times. So just really acknowledging it's okay to want to refer in. It's okay to want to make more money. Those things are absolutely okay. But if you are like, I don't really want to be a boss mm -hmm. that's to consider. Because, you, you know, you'll have to find someone to do the interviewing and the onboarding and who deals with like any sort of plans of action or correction or anything that comes up. So I really do think that's important to think about as well. Absolutely. And I think I'll, I'll add one thing to that because I, I agree with everything that you said. I'll also add that at the end of the day, you are still the practice owner and yeah. you may still get those highly escalated situations brought to you because at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. So if you don't want to deal with conflict, if you don't want to deal with pay conversations, if you don't want to, you know, handle 
you know, interpersonal issues that happen amongst team members or whatever, um, you know, dream of your worst case scenario. Do you see yourself handling that? Uh, do you see yourself wanting to learn how to be more capable of handling those things? Um, if you don't, if that scares the bejesus out of you and you're like, oh, hell no, this is not for me, probably don't want to lead a team of people because I guarantee you, no matter how wonderful your people are, there will always be points of contention. There will always be conflict. There will always be things that they get upset about. And the beauty is, is that you get to choose whether or not you want to be part of that and, and part of their growth and their development and your own growth and development as a, a leader, as a boss, as somebody who's managing other people. Um, or you get to say, no, I think I'm good as a solo practice owner. And all of these options are okay and they're valid and they're valuable and they're so worthy in this world. Absolutely. Those are great points. And I think this has been a really cool conversation, especially for those of you who are questioning this or just interested in group practice ownership or a part of a group practice or in this mental health space, because I think a lot of these things are are being talked about behind closed doors and there's a lot of myths to bust. So I appreciate you coming on and making the time, Ashley, and please tell the audience where they can find more of what you've got going on. Thanks again for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate this conversation. And, and I'm, I'm glad that we were able to bust some myths down and really open up the door to some hard conversations that people kind of shy away from or they don't want to maybe have in a public forum. So uh, you can find me, I always say we're sprouthr.co everywhere you go. So Facebook, Instagram, our website, my email, everything. Um, and we also have a fantastic podcast called The Impact Ripple, um, which we talk a lot more about these kinds of topics around, you know, hiring and leading your team, growing your practice. Um, and so I'd welcome you to come over there and uh, tune in for our show as well. And we'll have all of that information in the show notes. So all of you have easy access to all of Ashley's information. To everyone listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast, new episodes are out every single week on all major platforms and YouTube, like, download, subscribe, and share. Doubt yourself. Do it anyway. See you next week. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo host a great show called The Making of a Marketer. Jess, Andy, tell listeners what to expect from the show. So let's take marketing through a late night talk show lens. Eliminate the X's and O's and bring in the personality of marketers just brings it all together. So if you're looking for that POV on what drives that marketing and sales alignment on someone how they became a marketing executive, or what is that day-to-day -day when it comes to your personal brand? We talk about and tackle these subjects on the making of a marketer. And most importantly, it's fun. And where can people subscribe? Look for the podcast on LinkedIn under The Making of a Marketer. Find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Making of a Marketer wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.